Ezra chapter 5 this evening. Our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation on Sunday nights. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll be happy to get one uh, into your hands so you can follow along with us uh, tonight. We remember that Zerubbabel and a group of uh, just shy of 50,000 children of Israel were given an invitation by King Cyrus to return from Babylonian captivity to the land of Israel and specifically the city of Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple. 50,000 more or less, little bit less took God up on the offer, took Cyrus up on the offer, and returned to Jerusalem and began to build the foundation of the temple. And immediately they were met with resistance by those that didn't want the status quo, spiritually speaking, of Jerusalem or in any other way of Jerusalem, to be upset by this new group that was coming in to reestablish itself and the worship of their God in Jerusalem. And so they began to resist this work that they were doing. And the children of Israel backed off in response to the resistance. They ceased the work of the rebuilding of the temple, which was the sole reason they had left Babylon to come to Jerusalem uh, for, was to rebuild the temple. Cyrus's blessing was a miracle of God. They were doing it in obedience to the Lord. God's Spirit had touched the lives of men and women to make this journey. They got a little bit of resistance and they backed off and they stopped rebuilding the temple. They put God's will and purposes for their life on the sideline. And so for 15 years, this work of God, by the time we come to chapter 5, has been stopped. The children of Israel gave themselves to basically living like everybody else in the world, only they were on the way to heaven. So they were Jews, they loved the Lord, but they weren't going to serve the Lord and they weren't going to spend their lives the way that God wanted them to spend their lives. And so what do you do? You head into the God of materialism and so they began to build houses and panel it and fine wood and all of these different kinds of things that then crowded out God's purpose for their life. And they're absolutely content. They have fallen asleep in that condition. And... Who knows whether 15 years would have become 20, 25, 50. Who knows? Except God has a way of sending his alarm clocks to wake us up. You ever fallen asleep in your Christian life? A dose shout out. But it happens. Doesn't mean we head into some life of debauchery or sin or we end up on the front page of the Modesto Bee or something like that. Or our name becomes notorious in our family. We just quiet everything down. We just end up going through the motions. Got a relationship with God. We know we're on our way to heaven. But God's purposes and plans for our lives, the things that just consumed us early in our walk with the Lord, all of that's kind of, you know, it was nice to dream about. It was nice to try and do, but we got that resistance. And so now I'm just going to live out my three score in ten 
and die and be content to go to heaven. God won't let any of us get away with that. So maybe tonight he's using me as an alarm clock to wake you up. Who he used to wake up the children of Israel. And they needed a big alarm clock. Because they were in a real spiritual slumber and stupor. He sent a prophet by the name of Haggai. And another prophet by the name of Zechariah. To basically say to them. What in the world are you people doing? God sent you here not to enrich yourself or live a life like everybody else that's in the land, but He sent you here to do His work. You're God's people. God's going to bless the world with the Scriptures through your bloodline. He's going to bless the world forever and ever by bringing a Savior into the world through your bloodline. And the biggest you can think is about houses and paneling and furnishing them. You read the book of Haggai. Haggai came in and really let them have it to wake them up. It was loving and it was measured, but it was very clear and it was very, very direct. And it woke them up out of their stupor and returned them to uh, finishing the work that God had called them to do. So clearly in, in light of that, we know that when they ceased doing God's work, they ceased too easily. They should have pushed through. And if they had pushed through, they wouldn't have lost 15 years. So when resistance comes, any of us that takes a step of faith, God calls us to do something related to his kingdom. There is going to be resistance. It could be spiritual warfare. It can be family resistance. It can be a lot of different resistances. And we don't have the first bit of resistance. We get, okay, Uncle God, you didn't take care of me. And, uh, boy, if this is how hard it's going to be. You know, I, uh, I remember one time listening. I was a relatively new Christian. And there was a person was speaking at some kind of a luncheon or a meeting about trials that Christians go through. And... Uh, and it was a woman and she was talking about how th- this day she was having this hard day. And, and finally she just reached her end when something happened and she broke a fingernail. <laughs> she broke a fingernail? That's a hard day? I think you need an alarm clock. Things, but sometimes we get that resistance. And when God calls us to do something, we do it. We do it till we die. And if we can't afford the plane flight to get to the place that he's called us to, then we can just point ourselves in that direction and fall in that direction. But do what we can to do what it is that he's called us to do. And then it's up to the Lord then to show himself strong on our behalf and Give us the grace then to do it. And we're going to see that they're going to end up accomplishing this thing. But the problem is they've lost 15 years because they didn't fight through the resistance. And then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, as we saw last week. And so Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, They rose up and they began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So we look at this and we say, even Zerubbabel fell asleep. This is a great man. 
This is a great man of God. And he's willing to take this journey of several months from Babylon to Jerusalem to do this work. It's the passion of his life. He's leading 50,000 people to do it. And yet he falls asleep like everyone else. Why do I mention that? Because the best of us are prone to it. Sometimes things happen where we're walking along in our service to the Lord and everything's going fine. We're not doing anything wrong. We're not doing anything bad. Everything's just, it's kind of moving along and, and all. God's blessing it, you know, on, on some level. And then one day he comes in and he just speaks to our heart. And he realizes, man, you're just going through the motions. I know you love me. I know you're engaged with me. But not like it needs to be. God, Lord, I've fallen asleep here in my walk with you and your plan for my life. So even Zerubbabel fell prey to it. But I'll tell you something. As soon as he heard the voice of God through a prophet, got to give him credit. He and Jeshua, boy, they, they realized this is it. This is God's voice. And they rose up and they corrected the wrong situation in their life. And that's something that a prophet needs to understand. Someone who speaks uh, in a, with a prophetic boldness for God is to realize, as Haggai needed to know, Zechariah needed to know, that when a person speaks for God, they can trust that God will work the other side of it, that he will say amen to that message in human hearts, that this is the truth, and confirm it with accompanying signs and wonders. And so this is what he does here. And so the work rebegins. And at that time... Uh, uh, Tatnai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and uh, Shithar uh, Bosnai and their companions, they came to the Jews and they spoke thus to them. Who has commanded you to build this temple and to finish this wall? Now, Tatnai, he is a governor uh, as a part of the kingdom of Persia. Persia is ruling the world at this time. And so all of a sudden the Jews start to rebuild this temple once again from the foundation up. And he as a governor is supposed to notice these kinds of things because it can create some instability and uncertainty among the population. So he investigates, legitimately so. And so he arrives with these fellow kind of officials there and he demands to know who's given the, the command to build this. He wants some names. Who's the leaders of this uh, this grew. And then accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing the building. They didn't tell them who gave the command uh, and, and put them in potential danger. They said, listen, you want the name, rank and serial number of the guys that are building right now? We'll be happy to give you that to them. But we're not going to give you this other information. They just weren't going to be intimidated anymore. By these people that didn't like what God was doing through their lives. It already wasted 15 years. And it was like, no, we're not going to get bullied again on this. Well, you live and learn, don't you? In our walk with the Lord and our service to the Lord. And then he said, but the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could not make them cease until a report could go to Darius. And so they... God's favor was upon them just in their boldness. They, they basically said, we refuse to cease this work that Cyrus has given us the command to complete uh, until uh, you 
uh, we'll need a, a, a decree from Darius, who was then the ruler uh, of Persia. Then we'll need that kind of a decree to stop. And the Lord, the eye of, of God was upon them. His favor was upon them in that Tatnai and his officials accepted those terms. And then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. And this is a copy of the letter that Tatanai then sent uh, back uh, to the, the capital, to Darius. And he said, the governor of the region beyond the river and uh, Shethar uh, Bosnai and his companions, the Persians who were in the region beyond the river, to Darius the king. And then they sent a, they sent, they sent a letter to him in which was written thus, to Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judah to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber is being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and it prospers in their hands. And then we asked these elders and we spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? And we also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned us an answer saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed, referring to Solomon. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. And this is a healthy sign in, in, in these leaders in speaking to Tatnai and these other officials. They take responsibility for their captivity. They ended up in a Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And it was to say, boy, you know, Nebuchadnezzar really played hardball with us and nobody understood. And boy, if I'd have gotten a little help from over here and a little bit of this and that and fill their life with the rest of their life with excuses for why they ended up in the pit that they ended up in. But there's none of that. They say we ended up in bondage. Because we disobeyed the God that we committed to serve. That's why we ended up in the pig pen that we ended up in. And it's a sign of spiritual maturity when a person stops the blame shifting. It's not everybody else's fault. It's not parents. It's not this, not that. can be about other things, but not about this. Not about a relationship with God and being faithful to God. Nobody else can be blamed for being unfaithful to that. And they came in a good thing. We take responsibility for this. It tells us that they've processed that in a healthy way, and in a mature way. Another thing that I like about this letter as I read through it is that Tatnai is fair. Uh, he is trying to stop the work as a uh, Persian official, but he is fair. Remember the letters that we read earlier. I mean, they were just full of revisionist history and accusation and slander. They didn't represent the facts at all. But he's, he's written a letter here that he's being very careful to the facts. And there's a lot to respect in that. You know, a leader like Darius, he's, he depends on good information from his uh, governors and those that are in positions of authority under him in order to make proper decisions. And to his credit, he's got a very good one in Tatnai. And so, however, he says in verse 13, as the letter went on, in the first year of Cyrus, 
as the Jews explain their history. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God, this temple that we're building, and also the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon. Those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one named uh, Sheshbazar, which is uh, the Persian name that was apparently given to Zerubbabel, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these articles, go carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. And so he just informed this was the decree of Cyrus. And then the same Sheshbazar came and he laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even till now, it has been under construction and it is not finished. And then he comes to his request. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, that's how you talk to kings. Listen, I'm not telling you your business, but if it seems good to you, let a search be made in the king's treasures, uh, treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem Find out whether these facts are true and then let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. In other words, we are at your service and uh, whatever you want us to do here, you just simply tell us what that is and we'll be um, happy uh, to do that. So the request made that uh, this decree be found and they might have very well doubted that the decree existed, but there was only one way to find out. And that was for it to be searched for. And then King Darius, he issued a decree and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon and at Achmitha in the palace that is in the province of uh, Media, a scroll was found and in it a record was written thus. Now you've got to give Darius credit too. Because not all of the Persian kings in this resistance against the rebuilding of the temple were so conscientious or so thorough in, in trying to find this original decree of Cyrus. So today, you just you want to find out what you go to the computer, you Google Cyrus's decree concerning the temple search. Got it in three seconds. Three thousand websites we can go to to find it. Just click on any one. Those days, who knows what kind of warehouses and paperwork and papyrus and all of these scrolls and everything they had to do to go and find it. But he's diligent to do it because God was involved in all this. And so they found the record and the record was written thus. In the first year of King Cyrus, as he wrote his history concerning this, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid. Its height, 60 cubits, and its width, 60 cubits, with three rows of heavy stone and one row of new timber, and then let the expenses be paid by the king's treasury, paid out of government funds. And let the gold and the silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, 
which is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon. Let those things be restored and taken back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place and deposit them in the house of God. And so this was the decree that was found from uh, from Cyrus verifying the claims of of the Jews. And so he writes in his letter. Now, therefore, Tatnai, governor of the region beyond the river and uh, Shetharbosnai and your companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourself far from there. In other words, stay out of their business. Let the work alone. Do not interfere with it. Let the work of this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. So don't stop the work. And then he commanded even a little bit further, not only don't hinder the work, but here I'm going to ask you now to help the work proceed. Moreover, I issue a decree. I'm going to do more than than Cyrus did. I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. I, I want this work to continue forward and I want it to be paid out of government money. Talk about miracles. <laughs> they tried to hinder it. These are miracles when you get politicians to give tax money toward the work of the Lord. And so you leave them alone. And uh, the, uh, uh, and this is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine and oil, according to the request of the priests who are at Jerusalem, let it all be given them day by day without fail that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And so they said, supply him with all of this. And one of his motivations in writing this was that that uh, he would find favor in the eyes of the God of the Jews for allowing this. And then he said also. I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it and let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. So this is the kings in those days. Uh, they knew how to hold on to power. And so this was the threat of death and the loss of everything. If anybody disregarded his his uh, commands and tried to disrupt the work at all. Uh, both the Assyrians and the Persians uh, uh, practiced crucifixion uh, for the death of people. But what's described here is even something a little bit different from that. It wasn't unusual for them to take a great pole and just simply impale people on it and make an example of them and uh, kind of let them writhe to death on, on the pole. And so this was a, a common way of death. And so he said, listen, if anybody violates my decree here, let him be killed in this manner. And then when it says, let his house be made a refuse heap, uh, in other words, just level it to such a degree that it just looks like 
you know, a pile uh, of, of garbage. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree. Let it be done diligently. And so here uh, everything turns out more excellent and more favorably than uh, they ever uh, would have uh, could have believed. And this is important to realize. God was wanting to do this all along. If they had just persevered through the opposition early in their work, God was going to God was going to come and he could touch uh, the uh, heart of any other Persian king as effectively as he touched the heart of Darius. But they stopped before God. They gave God an opportunity to do a miracle for the work of God to prosper. And so that's why when God calls us to do something, he doesn't call us to try it for six months or to try it for three months. When he calls us to do something we're supposed to do that with a full commitment and then we'll see the fullness of the grace that he wants to add to what we're doing and then to make us successful. So God was going to do this all along, and, uh, but they, they quit too easily and then now they got back on track. Praise the Lord. God is the God of second chances. They got back on track and then they got to see what God uh, Wanted to do all along. He wanted a temple built. He was going to get a temple built. That's all there is to it. And and uh, but they uh, missed out on the miracle, except that God sent uh, uh, prophets there to wake them up. And then Tatnai, governor of the region beyond the river and his friend and their companions, they diligently did according to what King Darius had said. Yes, under the threat of being impaled on a log and my house being destroyed in 45 minutes, I would say diligent would be the word that most of us would. Uh, how diligently would you work at Home Depot if that was the contract of employment or anywhere? So, yeah, they... They're good, good employees and, and uh, good under governors. And so they did exactly what the king had required them to do. And so the elders of the Jews, they built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Edu. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of God, the God of Israel. God had commanded that it would be done, didn't want that command to be ignored until it was finished. It got finished when they finally added their full commitment and obedience to it. And according to the command of Cyrus, uh, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, these guys were no angels. You ever watch the news and watch world leaders, our own included, and you just think, my goodness, what a mess. They have made of everything. It's just criminal. You couldn't sit down with a blueprint and destroy the world more effectively than the economic and foreign policies that are in place all around this world. The whole pl the world's on fire. You don't know it or, or not. Israel's in an absolute ring of fire in the Middle East. This place can the world can blow up a hundred different ways. 
And we get and we look at it and we get anxious and then and then there's a little bit of progress and then our hearts are oh good it's going to move in the right direction and then it turns the and then it back and forth and the, and the whole up and down and the anxiety and the thing ah, 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 I think I'll start drinking again or whatever the whole and it's all an indication that we're trusting in men. And we're trusting in their actions and their decision making and what's going on and like that. God, God moved the hearts of three of the greatest emperors, pagan though they were, the history of the world. Like nothing. Just to get a building built. Nothing to him. He's working his purposes through all of it. And so the key is to look and say, God, I don't want to be yanked in every direction by what men or women are doing in this world that affects me. I want to look higher than that. Lead me to the rock that's higher than I. And I want to put my focus on you and trust you. If you could move them 3,000 years ago, you can move them today. And he can. And he does. This world is moving toward God's appointed end for human history. And nobody's going to change that. And that's a position of peace for us as Christians. And so, God, we, uh, we step out in faith. And by faith, I mean obedience to his word. Then he'll move whatever he's got to move in heaven and on earth for what he's called us to do to be accomplished. Now, let me say something about faith when God calls us to do something by faith. Faith is never a blind faith in the scriptures. God doesn't call us to live by hunch or educated guess. When faith is used in the Bible, it's interesting in Hebrews chapter uh, 11, where it lists that great list of men and women that God used in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Described it's the hall of faith is what it's known as. You realize not every single one of those men and women, not one of them had to guess God's will. That's, faith is not guessing God's will and then just taking a wild stab at it. To a man and to a woman, every one of them knew what God's will was. The faith came in concerning whether they would obey that will in spite of the circumstances that they faced. That's faith. Not guessing God's will. And ending up in Dubai because I had a pepperoni pizza. Instead of having the leadership, leading of the Lord. It's knowing absolutely what God has called me to do. And then now to see there's going to be a lot of obstacles. And a lot of difficulty and a hardship between here and that getting accomplished. But by faith... I'm going to obey what God has told me to do, and I'll know I'll be successful as a result of it. And so here is uh, the, the, the faith that they uh, took, and, and God honors faith, always honors faith in our life. And then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity, they celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. That would have been a great thing to be a part of. Uh, you know, better late than never. So they uh, got a chance to dedicate this temple to the Lord. They offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God 
100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. So 21 years after they had started uh, the building of that temple, they finished it. Four and a half years after uh, Haggai came on the scene with Zechariah and woke them up, they finished it. And when they finished the work, of course, it's, it's a great joy and a great celebration to see anything of the Lord come to a completion. And then they offered all of these offerings and all of these uh, sacrifices uh, to uh, the Lord. It's interesting when you look at the sacrifices and they're listed there. God wants us to know what they were. 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs and 12 male goats. That number of animals sacrificed to the Lord in the dedication of uh, this uh, second temple paled in comparison to the number of animals that were sacrificed to the Lord in the dedication of the first temple at the time of Solomon. There they, uh, at that dedication, uh, they offered sacrifices, 22,000 cattle, 120,000 sheep, and goats. And so this, what they offered paled in comparison. But what they did is they offered their best. They offered their best. Solomon and the children of Israel, they offered the, the best, their best at a time of tremendous prosperity within the nation. And they had to offer and offer and offer and offer these huge numbers For those numbers to ultimately represent some kind of sacrifice on their part to express their appreciation to the Lord. For this group of people in a much poorer time, materially speaking, in Israel's history, these smaller numbers represented the same level of sacrifice to the Lord. It represented their very best that they could give to the Lord. And so with the Lord, it's never the amount that we offer to him. Giving is never, ever measured by the amount that's given, but always by the sacrifice that it represents to the giver. We remember in the New Testament when Jesus made a special point to teach the disciples this very principle when they were at the air, in the area of the temple in Jerusalem and they had at the treasury where the offerings were kind of received in these Uh, containers at a particular place in the temple and people were coming in and they were giving great great amount of money to the Lord, but it was coming out of their excess. It didn't really represent a a sacrifice or hardship to them. And Jesus made note of a widow who came in and just put two mites in there. And And Jesus said, she's given more than all of these that have given out of their abundance and their excess because she gave out of her necessity. It was all that she had. I'm not priming you for an offering. Get ready for it now. All right, you ready, huh? Did what you give this morning represent a sacrifice? I'm going to give you another chance in the evening service. We're not going to do that. But it's good to know that. And here she is. She has what she has. Might have represented what she had to eat that day. But what was big in her heart and her relationship with God it took, it took that level of a sacrifice to communicate it to the Lord. 
One other thing is those 712 sacrifices that they offered, uh, those sacrifices testified of the sacrifice and the life of Jesus as much as the 142,000 sacrifices did. The same way that a church of a hundred members can testify of Jesus as richly as a church of 10,000 members. And then they assigned in verse 18 the priests to their divisions and the Levites uh, to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. So they established the proper order for worship to occur now at the temple. And the descendants of the captivity, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. So this is just fabulous timing. They finish the temple. They dedicate it to the Lord and then they get it done right before the Feast of Passover, which is one one of the three great uh, religious feasts of the Jewish religious calendar. And so here it's all ready now for Passover. And and so uh, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. And, uh, and, and, of course, the Passover was a celebration of God's deliverance of the Jews originally from the bondage of Egypt. So that's what they're celebrating. But it's kind of a subplot for what they're celebrating is also God's grace and God's love and God's favor upon their lives because he has also in that generation delivered them from the bondage of Babylon. So a lot to be thankful for for them. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean and they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity for their brethren, the priests and for themselves. And then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity, they ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And so this is speaking of the fact that they then established now we're going to worship the Lord. We're going to partake of the Passover feast. There was a ceremonial cleanly, cleanliness that was required uh, uh, about that. And so as, as Zerubbabel, these people that are committed to the Lord, this miracle of the temple has been built. They're, they're, uh, 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 celebrating the Passover for the first time in at least 70 years, actually far longer than 70 years. And there were a lot of Jews. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't say a lot. Um, there was a number of Jews that were left in the land of Israel when Nebuchadnezzar displaced the Jews out of Israel. So they stayed in the land. These pagan populations were shipped in. And then they begin to intermarry and begin to have children and new races of people developed as a result of it. The Samaritans uh, were one of them, kind of a spiritual race of Gentile and Jew uh, come together and the idolatry that resulted from that. And so in that, you had a lot of these Jews that had been left in the land. They had been they had given themselves over to 
idolatry, the paganism within the land, all of this living down to the level of the Gentile around them. And when they saw this great thing that God was doing, they they decided, all right, I'm done with this. I'm turning away from this. This is what I want to be a part of what God is doing through his people. And then they uh, so they they cleansed themselves ceremonially so that they could then partake uh, in in that uh, feast of of Passover. So they separated themselves. I like it from the filth uh, of of the world. And so uh, that that that's what they uh, considered what they had been living in compared to the holiness of being able to know God, walk with God, serve God. Everything else is kind of filth in comparison. And so they were all united together here in keeping this feast. I think it's important to recognize that their unity Uh, The unity of God's people, both then and now, is always based on holiness. It is always based on obedience. We can only be unified as we are holy. We can only be unified as God's people as we are obedient in the world. You say, that's a no-brainer. Everybody knows that. No, it isn't a no-brainer, and everybody doesn't know that. The Christian world that I watch today has a lot of very, very good things happening in it. A lot of wonderfully committed men and women doing fabulous things for the Lord. And their commitment to the things of God is just absolutely stellar. But there is another group, and they are significant in number, who are determined to produce a spiritual unity in this world based upon compromise to God's word by lowering the standard By lessening the standard, it will never work. I can't change the world. I can't change the body of Christ. I have no interest in it. I'm my own full-time job with the Lord. I say it tongue-in-cheek, but I speak to you. It's a waste of time. Because if you produce a unity based upon compromising The word of God, the only people who will go for that are carnal people. If I if I tried to pull that in this church and it was successful, I'd resign tomorrow. We got a board meeting tomorrow night. I'd hand in my resignation. It it would be a condemnation of of my ministry and my service to the Lord. If I could get people to unify on compromise and on disobedience and lowering the standard of God's word. And the reason it never works is because if I if we propose that or we advance that kind of thing, truly spiritual people will never buy into it. That's an affront to them. They will never join that. They love the Lord too much for that. And they will not compromise their convictions concerning the word of God and obedience to the word of God and risk grieving the Holy Spirit and wasting their lives in order to produce some kind of fleshly unity that God won't be able to use to make a difference anyway. The only people that are attracted to a unity based upon compromising or lowering the standard of God's word are carnal people. And if you think hurting cats is hard, you try pastoring a group of people. Just have a home fellowship. You don't even need a church. Carnal people. 
people who are dominated by their flesh. They still think they're smarter than God. They haven't settled the issue of Jesus' lordship in their life. They want to do things their way. They haven't surrendered the big I in their life to the Lord. The problem is you put a whole bunch of people like that that are in that same condition. How are you going to unify them? Because everybody thinks they're more important than everyone else and smarter than everyone else. You cannot unify carnality. So the church at Corinth... (laughs) But Paul said, I wish I could write to you as spiritual, but I've got to write to you as carnal. Ouch. When that letter got read that night at the evening service. Don't think people didn't wince in that room. They thought they were spiritual. He said, I can't speak to you as spiritual. You're carnal. And the very first and then he deals with about ten things that are evidences of their carnality in that church. And the very first thing he begins with was division. The contentions and the fighting and the division with one another. And that's the problem is you cannot unify carnal people. They're fighters. If you cannot find a reason to unify that is greater than our differences, you're never going to produce a unity. And only Christ provides those greater things. And so the unity has to be found in him and obedience to him. The rest of this stuff is nonsense and it's a waste of time. And you can go and be a part of this thing, but it will self-destruct in six months, in two years, in four years. But it always self-destructs. Never compromise the word of God on a personal level or any level in order to unify or produce a unity in the so-called body of Christ, because the Holy Spirit isn't a part of that. Because the Holy Spirit produces a unity based upon holiness and based upon obedience. Those are people that can be truly unified for God's purposes. And so it's a little bit of that stuff going on today, and a lot of it is is just uh, nonsense don't buy into that thing, and that thing is very popular at the moment. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days, so that was another feast of the Jews that it was right up against the Feast of Passover. They kept it with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And so we will stop uh, there tonight and look to partake in the Lord's Supper. As we want to introduce the Lord's Supper this evening, I'd like you to just turn with me over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11.